Good morning, everybody. There we go. Uh, if you have your phones <clears throat> or your Bible, whatever you choose to use, uh, paper or digital, go ahead and turn to Exodus 12. Exodus 12, if you don't know where that's at in the actual paper Bible, just find Genesis, the first book, and hang a right, and you're right there. So Exodus 12, we're going to be starting at verse 33, and I'll give everybody a moment to get there once I get some snipples out of the way here. Exodus 12:33. All right, let's read. It's going to be a lengthy one, so follow along so that you could uh, fix the words that I might mispronounce and or uh, stumble over. So here we go. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls, bounding up in their cloaks and their shoulders, the people of Israel had done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have whatever they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for there was not leavened because they were thrown out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time, the people is, <clears throat> the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, that very day, all the host of the Lord went up from the land of Egypt. It was, night, uh, it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So the same night as the night of watching kept the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statue of the Passover. No foreigner should eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all of his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native in the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law. There should be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did not, <laughs> pardon, all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on the very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. 13. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. Then the Lord said to his people, Remember this day which you have came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No unleavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Ahab, or Abib, did I say that? Abib, yeah. You were going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hevites, the Jebusites, which he swore to you, to your fathers, 
to give you a land flowing of milk and honey. You shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. No leavened bread shall be seen with you in all of your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And you shall say, or it shall be to you as a sign uh, on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth for a strong, for with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statue at a point in time from year to year. 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, and as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey shall redeem, you shall redeem with a lamb, or if, <clears throat> or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn man, every firstborn of man, your sons shall redeem. And when you, and when in time uh, to come to your sons ask you, and when time, pardon, 14, and when in time to come to your, your sons ask you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery, when Pharaoh was stubbornly refused, or stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both of the firstborn of man and firstborn of animal. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that are first, that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a mark on your hand or the frontlet between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Amen. Thanks, man. Whew. All of these are mouthfuls. Well, good morning. You guys ready? All right, I'm ready. Um, keep, your, keep your finger in Exodus 12. We're going to get there in a minute. If you don't know me, my name's JT. I'm one of the pastors here. So thankful that you're at Freshwater this morning. So thankful you can join us for our series on Exodus. All right, so um, I'm going to get right into it. Um, do, let me ask you, especially for your own, do you like birthdays? Do you like your own birthday celebration? Yeah, so it's funny to look around the room. Some people are like, uh-huh, and some people are, uh-huh, uh. I know I stand up here and I preach and like I get a lot of attention from doing that, but I'm kind of like my wife. I don't like a lot of attention. So is it, any, is, is it just me or is there anyone else in the room that, that feels really awkward when a room full of people are singing you happy birthday? Is that just me? It's just, it's an awkward thing. And for me, um, I, I know I get up, like I said, I get up and preach and everybody looks at me, but there's something about when people sing to you. I never know what, where to look. I never know what to do. Is it, right? I'm not alone, right? Because singing to someone, like looking into someone's eyes and singing to them is kind of a personal, intimate thing, isn't it? So like when people are singing to me, I'm like, do I look in their eyes? But no, that's like too deep of a connection. That's intimate. I can't do that. But if I'm looking at the ground, it gets all awkward and everybody else feels awkward. So I kind of end up doing this like half smile thing, acting like I'm not super uncomfortable. Why everybody sing me happy birthday for those 30 seconds that feel like 30 minutes? Am I alone? No, right? For some of you, just love attention, right? It's like the best thing ever. When you're eight, it's the best thing ever for most kids. But man, it just feels awkward. So let me ask you, why do we do it? If it's, I think it's awkward for most people that are, that are older than 12, right? So um, why do we do it? I think there's a lot of reasons that we do it. But I think one of the main reasons we do it is, man, to honor someone, right? To remember how thankful we are 
for them to, re- to remember what they mean to us, to be able to show what they mean to us, to be able to celebrate their lives, right? And, and in some cases, even celebrate in some ways how they shaped our lives, right? When, I, when, we, do, when we do my parents' birthday or we do my wife's parents' birthday, we always talk about what they meant to, to us through prayer or whatever else. It's a way for us to remember. It's a way for us to honor. And that be, that's important, right? Even through the, the awkward happy birthday song, it's important. It's an important thing to do. Well, here, it's going to tie into what we're doing today because today we're finally, finally going to see people, God's people actually exodus from Egypt, right? Today is the literal exodus. So God is finally going to fulfill his promises, and it's an amazing day. It's an amazing thing in Scripture, and it's really important. But, but even though that huge event is happening, and it's one, honestly, it's one of the most important things that will happen in all of the Bible. Through all of the Old Testament, they, they point back to this moment as one of the most important moments in all of Jewish history. Even though all that's true, God doesn't seem to be only concerned with this moment. He seems to be really focused on the future. He seems in this moment, this huge moment, he seems to be focused on his people remembering this moment, celebrating this moment, a memorial to this moment, almost maybe more or as much as the actual moment itself. Now, why would God put a lot of his focus there? Why would Moses, who wrote this book, put most of his focus there? Well, that's what today's going to be about. And so, if you haven't been with us, let me, the, really quick recap, God's people that we'll call the Israelites, we'll call the Jews, we'll call the Hebrews, all the same people, just different names, have been in Egypt for 430 years. And for a little less than a fourth of that, about a fifth of that, as far as we know, they've been slaves in Egypt. And so they prayed for God to deliver them. God heard their prayers, God answered their prayers, and he sent Moses and, and his brother Aaron to come, to come before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and say, let my people go. But did Pharaoh listen? No. So we've got nine plagues, nine plagues later, God sends all these plagues, these judgments against the sins of, of Egypt and their sins against his people. For nine plagues, Pharaoh says, I'm going to let him go, and then he doesn't, and then he doesn't, and then he doesn't, and then finally the last plague comes. The last plague, if you weren't with us, was the killing of the firstborn in all of Egypt. And God said, like, this is a punishment for sin. This is a judgment on sin. And even though the Israelites have their own sin, God says, hey, listen, if you take the blood of a lamb, you put it above your doorpost, I'll let that be a, a sacrifice, a substitute for you. When I, so when the, the destroyer comes to kill the firstborns, if they see the blood of the lamb, I will pass over your households and you will be spared, which is where we get the name Passover, right? God passed over them. Not because the Israelites were better than everybody else, right? But it's simply because God chose them and chose to have grace on them. And he says, if you follow me in faith, if you do this thing in faith that I've asked you to do, I'll pass over your sins because God has grace and mercy for those who are faithful to him. And so where we're picking it up today, the, the plague has come, the firstborns have died throughout all of Egypt, and fi- Pharaoh finally relents, which if you remember back in, all the way back in Exodus 3 or 4, God said he's not going to relent until this plague comes. But this plague has come, and just as God said, Pharaoh relents, and he says the people can go. So where we picked it up today, where TJ started reading, is where they are preparing to leave. And so today's passage, um, what we're going to see is really the theme's of this entire book come together just in one passage. If you haven't been with us, the, the main themes over this book, we've said are God, is God's covenant faithfulness, that God keeps his promises, right? That God delivers, right? Particularly through sacrifice, that God delivers. And then lastly, God's presence. And we're gonna see all of those in here today. But where we're really going to land is with our identity in God. In particular for us, our identity in Christ. That by remembering who our God is, who he actually is, and by remembering, really remembering what he's done and the weight of what he's done for us, that through that, 
through that, by remembering, by having memorials to God, we're able to hold on to our identity of who we are in him because of those things that he's done. Because, guys, so often it's in the remembering, it's in the remembering that we keep from losing our way. That's why these things are so important. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump back into the first part of our passage, and we're, and we're going to see the themes that I talked about play out. So as I read this, see if you can pick out the themes of God's covenant faithfulness, God's deliverance, and God's presence. As we read um, in chapter 12, we're going to read verse 33 through 42 to start out that first section. Exodus 12:33. Read with me one more time. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. Right after those 10 plagues, everybody in Egypt thinks they're going to die if the Israelites don't get out of Egypt right now. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked 11 cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Now, I think we can see the big obvious promise that God kept, like God's covenant faithfulness, the big obvious promise that God kept that he said he was going to deliver his people, which is our second theme, like that he delivered them from slavery. It's why the book is called Exodus, right? Because this is the Exodus out of Egypt. It's this moment, but it's also more than just this moment. It's an even deeper promise than God just promising back at the beginning of Exodus that he would deliver his people when they cried out to him. This goes all the way back, if you remember, all the way back to the original promise with Abram, who hasn't even become Abraham, Father Abraham. Hasn't even become Abraham yet. God hasn't changed his name. He's still Abram. So all the way back in Genesis, Genesis 15, I just, just want to give us a reminder. reminder. It, it says this. Then the, the Lord, Lord said, said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. And this is all the way back towards the very beginning of the Bible. God told them, this is exactly what's going to happen to you. Like, this is like five, 600 years later that it's finally playing out just like God said it would. So church, right here, this is why it's so important to know and to study the Old Testament. Because we get to see how faithful God is to keep his promises. And then he pulls those promises all the way through the Old Testament, all the way into the New Testament. It encourages us to remember, right? It's not just about what God is doing for all of us right now. It's about remembering what he has done and how long he has been doing it so that you could be sitting right here right now saved in Jesus Christ. This is the story of scripture. This is the story of salvation throughout history. So in this passage, we not only saw our themes of God's covenant faithfulness, of God's deliverance through sacrifice, we also see the third one, God's presence. Did you see that? Particularly in verse 42, it says that God was watching over them by night. 
as he brought them out of Egypt. And we're going to see that continue with the pillars of smoke and fire. We're going to see that at Mount Sinai. We're going to see that play, then play out later with the tabernacle and the temple, that God's presence, he's not just watching over his people, that he's with his people, that he's guiding his people, that he's protecting his people. And that Again, that gets pulled all the way. God's presence with his people becomes a major theme throughout all of the Old Testament and particularly into the New Testament with us, with the Holy Spirit within us. All of this a precursor. It's all pointing towards bigger and better things. And so we see all these themes wrapped up in the, the literal exodus, them leaving Egypt. We see all the themes of this book kind of wrapped up in this one part. But even though those are our three main themes and we keep talking about them and I want you to remember them, right? Because it's what we hold on to. God is faithful. God delivers his people. He's delivered me. He'll save me. And God is with me. Hold on to those things like we need to hold on to them today. I, I've said in the series so far that even though those are the three major themes, that there's one big major theme kind of covering every other theme of this book. Do you remember what it is? Anybody? It's God's glory, right? That this book is really, ultimately, all of these things, all of these things are about God's glory. And that, honestly, that's the whole story of the Bible, isn't it? Isn't the Bible about God's glory? Right, what, what's, our, what's our mission statement at Freshwater Church? glorify God and advance the gospel. If we're, work, if we're living for God's glory, then everything else is going to play out. And not only is this book about God's glory, all of the, the plagues, all of the judgment were about God's glory. God's glory going forth to his people, to the Egyptians, and to the world. But I also said that through God's glory, he's evangelizing to the world. You remember me saying that? I think it was last week. This is God evangelizing to the world, that he is the one and only God, that salvation and provision only comes through him. And we see that playing out already in this passage. Did you catch it? Because we see the thing that 600,000, that would be 600,000 fighting men left Egypt of fighting age. Now, people debate on that number. Did you know that? In the Hebrew, you go back and look at the Hebrew word that's used here. Some people think it was way less than that. Some people think this, this number is completely accurate. But what we know for sure is there were a lot of people. There were a lot of slaves in Egypt, Israelite people, and they left. So 600,000 really equates to 2 million because that's 600,000 men of fighting age. So upwards of 2 million people walked out of Egypt. And that is a huge deal. They're like walking out into the desert. This is a huge deal. No wonder Pharaoh did not want to let his people go. Can you imagine losing that workforce that worked for free, that you had enslaved. Of course he didn't want to let them go. This is a major blow to the Egyptian economy after God's destroyed their economy through all the plagues. Unbelievable pain was going to come out of this. But it's not just the people of Israel that left. Did you, hear what it, did you see what it said in verse 38? It said that a mixed multitude left with them. Meaning there were probably Egyptians and other people that left with the Israelites as they walked out of Egypt. Like I said, this is about God's glory. This is about God evangelizing that he is the one and only God over all creation, that he is the Lord. So there's people that saw this and said, I, I believe in this God. I'm going to follow this God. So they walk out of Egypt with the Israelites who left with, the, like literally left with the plunders of war. They left with gold and jewelry. And when we get later in Exodus, you're going to see just how much they left with. They, they left with enough to build the tabernacle and, the, and start building towards the temple. All of this gold, all of this jewelry, all of this stuff that was going to be used to worship God. God not only provided for them what they would need, but he provided for them everything they would need to worship him. It's pretty amazing. And they don't even know that yet. They don't even know that yet. They're going to get that at Mount Sinai when we get there, but we're not there yet. And so we see even people who aren't Egyptians, who aren't Israelites, like Egyptians, leaving with them, converting to Judaism, because God's glory is going forth. 
I wish we had time. We're not going to go into the later books after Exodus, but even when they get to, they finally get to the promised land after 40 years. Spoiler alert, right? They don't get there right away. They finally get there, and they go to before the walls of Jericho. Do you remember how the people of Jericho responded? They were terrified of the Israelites, the slaves. Do you know why? Because they heard what God had done. They had, heard, they had seen God's glory go forth to the world, that a bunch of slaves had, had somehow defeated the greatest nation on earth. God's glory was going forth about who he really was, so much so that a major city with a huge wall was scared of a bunch of slaves. God's glory is going forth. So through the Exodus, God has shown us that he's faithful, that he delivers his people. He's shown us that he is with us, he is with them in particular, and his glory is going forth. So with that established, God has established with them who he is, what he's doing. He now has very specific instructions. When TJ was reading, was there any of that you were kind of like, huh? And these are pretty specific instructions as they're leaving in the Exodus, isn't it? But these instructions will help define what it actually means to be the people of God going forth. This is kind of the beginning of the law that God's going to give at Mount Sinai when we get there and not too much longer, right? God's really defining, here's what it means to worship me. Here's what it is to be the people of God. That's what this really was about. And so the rest of our passage today is really about the institution of the Passover meal and kind of everything that goes with that. It's like kind of all tied together. Because if you were with us last week, our, our passage last week, and really in our passage today, we're, we're, we're seeing not only the Exodus and the Passover literally play out, but we're, we're seeing all of God's instructions. Because if you remember from last week, do you remember that um, the year is literally going to start now with the Passover? God changed where their year started. So the year is going to start with them remembering what God has done. Their whole lives are going to be centered around this. And so we saw last, last week with the Passover, there were instructions about how they prepare the food and, and then the days they prepare the food and all of that. But now God's going to get even, even more specific. And as we walk through some of these things, I'll, I'll just be, especially if you're new to Christianity, some of these things are going to seem kind of strange. Some of these things might even seem a little bit brutal. But here's the thing, if we look deeper at the meanings we're quickly going to start realizing that all of these things are born out of God's love and grace for his people. They're all born out of God's mercy because they're all pointing to something greater. Because here's the truth. We're so quick to forget, right? We're so quick to forget where our identity lies. We're so quick to find our identity in things other than the Lord, in things of this world. It happens to us so quickly. It's what we're going to see play out in the rest of the Old Testament. God is telling them, this is how you worship me. This is how you walk in blessing. This is how you walk in strength. This is how you'll have my protection. And they do it for a while, but then what happens? They forget. And they start placing their identity in other things, and they immediately start losing their way. We're so quick to forget. And so God is setting all this up. So first and foremost, so that we have proper worship. But secondarily, so we don't forget where our identity lies. So we're going to see that. Look for that, and we're going to start in in chapter 12, verse 43. And we're going to read all the way through the end of the passage again, right? It's a lot of reading, but I want you to see it. And I want you to to try to pick out where God is trying to help them hold on to who he is and their identity in Christ, even though we're reading some kind of strange things. So again, let's read in chapter 12, verse 43, and we're going to read all the way through 13, 16. You ready? Stay with me on this. Try Try to stay focused. It's a lot. All right, here we go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. 
but every slave that is brought that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. Now, really quickly, when it talks about slavery in the Old Testament, it's not the slavery that we think of. It's like a bond servant. People would work for families. They basically sell themselves to, to a family for a time, and they would work for them. And then, but God literally set up, sets up the law later that every seven years those people are set free, right? And, and their debts are forgiven. So this is about debt. This is about work. It's not about capturing people and enslaving them, just for clarity, right? Um, it's not what we do now, for sure, but it's not the same thing that we think of when we think of slavery. Keep going in verse 45. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it, talking about the Passover meal. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall, shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. Verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey shall, you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time, and when in time to come your sons asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. I need a drink. Whew. Lydia, I don't know how you do it. That's, that's, that's tough. All right. So the whole point of that is found in multiple places. We see it said it again and again. But really, we can find the whole point of that passage in chapter 13, verse 3. In a word, it's saying this, remember, right? Remember, remember that you were once abused slaves to a great power. But now by my strong hand, you have been set free to be beloved servants of an even greater power. That's what this is about. That's what the, this, is, this is what God wants him to remember. 
So God gives them really, gives them really three really important things to remember when celebrating the Passover meal and God's deliverance of them out of the land of Egypt. The first one is the importance of doing the Passover meal correctly. Doing the Passover meal correctly. So as I mentioned before, last week we got a lot of details about that on Easter. If you weren't there, you can go back and listen to it. About how, when they're supposed to do the meal, how they're supposed to cook the meal on the first day, on the first month of the year, they're to do it on the 14th day. All of those little details about how that is supposed to play out. But here God is strongly making the point that, o- that only family does this meal together. Keep in mind, this is Moses writing this after all of this has happened. So he's reminding them not only of the Exodus, but what God commanded from the beginning of how they were supposed to approach this. This is really written for when they get to the promised land, so they know how to, to remember all of this correctly. And the Passover meal is a huge deal when it comes to this. So how do, how do circumcision and Passover and a meal come together? Because again, I've said this before, if, you've, if you're newer to church, circumcision being a big deal in the Old Testament is just weird, Right? It just sounds weird. It's okay that it sounds weird. But here's the thing. If, to, make, to, to make it really short, circumcision was a physical outward sign of a spiritual inward truth. Does that make sense? It's kind of like when it's, it's similar in a way, and it's not similar in other ways, but it's kind of similar to after we believe in Jesus Christ, what do we do? What do we need to do? We're new believers. We, we, we get saved. What should be next? Baptism right? It's an outward sign. It's a physical sign of an inward truth. Does baptism save us? No, and circumcision doesn't save them either. It's a very, very big deal. God commands that this must happen, but it's a sign that they are God's people. That's what it represents. Nobody else did circumcision, especially back then, right? It was a sign that they are set apart by the Lord as God's people. So God is saying this Passover meal is a family thing. Like this is meant to be for family, not for everyone. So he's saying, hey, people that sojourn with us, that travel with us, they can come visit you, they can spend time with you. But listen, when it comes to the Passover meal, you are to be set apart. You're to set apart this thing as holy. And so sojourners, people hanging out with you, people that are with you, if they are not one of us, then they should not do the Passover meal because this is a family thing. Does that make sense? But he also provides way. He says, hey, listen, if they, if they get circumcised, they can take the Passover meal with us. Was the point, do you think the point was if circumcision equals they're good to go on Passover? Is that the point? No, when it says in the Old Testament, if you circumcise them, they can, they can join the Passover meal. Circumcision, again, is an outward sign of an inward truth, right? So he's saying if they've converted to Judaism, if they've converted to be one of our people, then they can now take the Passover meal with us. As the passage said, it, it, it's, if it's as if they are one they are people of the land now. They are one of God's people. They can start taking the Passover meal as the family. Does that seem strange? Do, do we do that? Do we do something similar now? What do we do now that's similar to that? Communion, right? When we, we do communion, which is the fulfillment of the Passover, right? Jesus Christ died on the cross as a sacrificial lamb so God would pass over our sins. So when we do communion, we, we actually say from the front, listen, if you're in here today and you're not a believer, you haven't given your life to Christ, we ask people not to take communion. Now, are we cool with people who don't believe coming to Freshwater Church? Somebody say amen. Amen. Of course we are. 
Please come. If you're not a believer and you're in here today, of course we want you here. Of course we want you learning with us. We're so thankful that you're here. But one of the most holy and consecrated things that the Jews could do was the Passover meal. And one of the most holy things that we can do to honor the Lord is communion together. And that's a family thing. So we ask people, hey, we don't want you to, we don't want people to notice that you're not taking communion today. Here's what it's about. It's one of the most holy things we can do to honor our Lord. So to honor us, would you just not take communion because it's a big deal for us. It's a big deal for us to honor the Lord well. And so we ask people not to take it. That's what's going on here, right? Because God has set this apart as a family thing that we're not just, the Jews aren't just saved and we aren't just saved. They are saved to be a part of a family. They are saved to be something, to be God's people. That's where their identity is found. And we're saved in Christ as the church. We're not just saved as, no, we're not just saved just, just me. It is a personal thing, but you are saved into the church. You are saved into Christ's bride, and that's a family thing. And so God's saying, hey, this is a family thing. Like communion is a family thing. And I want you to take this really serious because what I did for you is serious. I love how in verse 8, when it says, when you tell your sons about this, it's saying, um, it's communicating that the Exodus, the Passover was for me. It's communicating that for all generations, this is a personal it's as, it's as if the Exodus and the Passover happened to each subsequent generation, that it, was, it that happened to them personally, because it was for them. Just like now, we communicate Jesus dying on the cross is our Passover. It, it's like, it's as if it happened to me with what happened with Jesus Christ on the cross, right? This is a very personal thing. And so they want to tell their kids about this personal thing, this family thing. So it's a way for them to remember and it's a way for them to pass on to their children the importance of this, right? That's just as important. It's mentioned twice in the passage. It's not just that you remember and you make it personal. We do these things so that when your kids ask, hey, why are we eating this Passover meal? Why are we doing this Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we're going to talk about in a second? Why are we sacrificing the firstborns? It's so that the kids can remember so that we can pass it on to others from generation to generation. Okay. So the first one is the power of the Passover, remembering what God did, but also remembering that God saved them into a family and they're to do this as a people together. The second thing is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this one, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a part of the Passover. Like they have the Passover meal and then for the next week they have the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It's two separate things, but really it's all tied together, right? It's all about the Exodus. And so what they do on the 14th day, they'd have the Passover meal. The next week would be a feast of unleavened bread, which if you don't know what unleavened bread means, it means just with no yeast. The bread does not rise, right? That's what it means. We just don't want, don't let the bread rise for the next seven days, and then they'd have a big feast together. So do you remember from last week, if you were with us, what the point of the unleavened bread is? Because again, this is one of those things that like they can't eat bread with yeast in it, they can't let their bread rise. It seems kind of weird if you don't know what's going on. But if you remember, when the, when the last plague was coming, the destroyer was coming to kill the firstborn. God said, not only do I want you to put the blood of the lamb over the door, but I want you to get ready to go right now. You don't have time to wait for your bread to rise. You don't have time to, to cook the goat in this particular, or the lamb in this particular way. I want you to man, make the bread. Don't wait, wait for it to rise. I want you to get your sandals on your feet. I want you to have your staff in your hand because the destroyer is going to come and then Pharaoh is going to relent and then you, get, you need to be ready to go right now. 
So this was about, one, God passing over their sins. Because you, you, if you read through Scripture, leaven sometimes represents sin growing in us, right? So it represents God passing over our sin, the sin that can grow in us if we don't have faith in him. But it's also about having faith in God and trusting his word. God said, they've been in slavery for a long time. They've been in Egypt for 400 years. And now God's saying, right now, right now I want you ready because I'm about to conquer the most powerful nation in the world for you. Be ready to walk out the door now. So that's what this represents, believing that God truly can pass over our sins, like that sin doesn't have to rise up in us and own us, and I want you to believe in faith that I've got you, that my promises are true. So it's about being ready. It's about having faith in the Lord that he provides, that he does what he says he's going to do. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a big deal, and again, it says, hey, when you have this feast, when your sons, when your kids come to ask you, why do we do this? It's so that we can point back to how faithful God was to us and so that we never forget. So this one is about the importance of faith, the importance of remembering what the Passover represented. And then the third thing that God seems to want them to remember is the consecration of the firstborn. Now, this is the one that at first glance I think seems really strange, even a little bit brutal. So they're supposed to set apart to consecrate all the firstborns of man and animal. The firstborn sons of man and animal. Now, specifically, what did it mean to give your firstborn to God, right? To consecrate them to God. What did that mean? Well, it means to set them apart as holy, which is what the people of Israel were supposed to represent to the world, right? To be set apart as holy. It's again, that's what circumcision represented. You're different. I expect different things of you. You're to represent my glory, my holiness, to be set apart. And so the children kind of represented this being set apart as, as holy, now, practically, how did that play out? Did you see it in the passage? For a lamb or for a goat or other edible animals, it meant the firstborn, you were to sacrifice to the Lord. I want you to think about for a second how costly that would have been to a family at that time. Right? The firstborn, the, the first one that they can eat or they can sell or whatever, the first one it produces that every year they're to give that one to the Lord to sacrifice. And later we'll see that play out in the law. The reason it's edible animals is because that's what the priests would eat after they sacrificed it to the Lord, but we don't have time for that today. So if it was an edible animal, they'd sacrifice that to the Lord. If it was an unedible animal, like a donkey, they would use a substitute, right? A substitutionary atonement, remember that word from last week? A sacrifice that would stand in the place of the donkey. And if they didn't have that, here, here's where it gets brutal. They'd kill the donkey. They'd kill the firstborn, because it was the Lord's. And then lastly, if it came to the firstborn of a man, firstborn of a man and a woman, um, they would sacrifice a lamb or a goat or whatever kind of animal to redeem their child back to them. It was a redemption. It was paying the price because they were the Lord. They were set apart as the Lord. So they would, they would bring a sacrifice to the Lord. In the new, in later in the Old Testament, like five shekels, we don't have time for it, but, like, but basically it was an animal that was a substitute for their child so they could redeem. And they would pay the redemption price to the Lord to have their, basically to represent having their child back because the firstborn is the Lord's. Listen, this all represented giving our first and our best to God. Everything that we have, the first and the best, we don't give God leftovers. I did a whole sermon on that once, how we basically give God what's left over in our life. We don't have time for that today. Is that not true? So often, if we, have to, if, if we happen to have the, the money at the time, if we happen to have extra, then we try to be generous. If we have the time, if, if our life doesn't get in the way, then we go and serve the Lord and do the things he's asked us to do, like love the poor, 
right? It's, it's, there's a lot of ifs in our lives about how we come to the Lord. This is all about making the Lord first, about finding our identity in him first, about not even placing, not placing our trust or giving our identity or finding our identity in anything in this world, listen, including our children. What is a bigger idol factory for us as parents than our kids? And God knows it. Do you think God doesn't know it? That we find our identity and what kind of parent we are or how well our kids do, or the things that they're involved with, or, 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 or. That's why so many marriages fall apart when the kids leave the house. Their identity is found in being a parent and loving their children, and then when they're gone, they don't know what they have left. One of the most dangerous idol factories in our lives because it's so hard to see, because of course we're supposed to love our kids as much as we love anything other than the Lord and our spouse. So it might seem a little bit brutal, but you see why this is such a powerful reminder of what God has done for them? It's a reminder that 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 last and that worst plague of them all, the killing of all of the firstborn sons in Egypt, it showed, that, that plague showed the unbelievably high cost of sin. Man, we talked about that in life this week. We've got to remember, right? We always focus on grace, God's grace and mercy, but until we understand the cost, the unbelievably high cost of sin to a holy and righteous God, we're never going to really understand God's grace and mercy and his love and what he's truly done to forgive us. And this plague and the consecrating of the firstborn, which is remembering what happened with the firstborn plague, is us remembering the weight of sin and remembering the unbelievable things God did to free his people from Egypt. Because it wasn't about them being perfect. It was about God's grace. It was about God's mercy on them. But obviously for us that are under the new covenant, it's even bigger. It's even even better, isn't it? Church, this consecration of the firstborn, even this firstborn plague, points forward to how God would purchase would redeem all of his people, how he would, how he would have forgiveness for them, how, how God would redeem his children, because that's what this is about, right? They give their best, they give their firstborn, and then they pay the redemption price for them so they can have them back from God. And so this is pointing forward to when God would show us just how costly sin truly is. It's so costly Sin is so serious to a holy and righteous God that his own son, the one that the Bible calls the firstborn of all creation, because in him he created a new mankind, a new humanity by what he accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection. It was so costly that God had to sacrifice his own son on the cross to redeem his children, to buy us back from sin. That's what it took. God's own son had to be sacrificed so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be bought back, so the blood price could be paid. And sometimes, church, we just need to feel the weight of that. And I know we talked about it on Good Friday. I know we thought about through Easter, but the cost of sin is so high, and nobody understands the cost of that sin more than your heavenly Father, more than Jesus Christ. No one understands it more deeply. The only son, the only child, the only man that ever deserved only honor and glory and praise was sacrificed because the cost of sin is so high. So that the redemption price could be paid. So that we could be redeemed as God's people. The firstborn plague 
was pointing forward to when God would give his firstborn son to redeem us. And God is telling them, I want you to give all of your firstborns to me so that you never forget the cost of sin and the enormity of my grace to you. So with the Passover meal and with the feast of unleavened bread and the consecration of the firstborn, God was showing them and he is showing us just how important it is that we remember these things, that what it took for forgiveness to be paid so that we might know how much he loves us. So that we might understand what he's forgiven so that we could be a part of his family. Right? Listen, church, this is not about guilt and shame. This is, about, this is not about you not, not feeling this enough. We, not, we need to feel the weight of it. But through feeling the weight of it, we can feel the beauty of the gospel. We can feel the beauty of redemption. We can feel the joy and the hope. It comes like this is what God was willing to do, not only so that we could remember, not only so that we could know him, but so we could find our identity in him because finding our identity in him is hope. It is joy. It is purpose. It is who we were meant to be. Because we so quickly lose that identity. We lose who we were meant to be. We forget. I had a conversation recently. A conversation with someone who kind of seemingly has it all. Um, he's got a great job. Makes a, and at his job, has a ton of respect. Is like, like maybe the most highly respected person at his job. Makes a lot of money has healthy kids, but in, in the end, he's right now struggling very hard finding his joy and his purpose in these things. And the reason he's struggling right now is he, he can't imagine a future without these things. See, I can't even picture my life after retirement. I, I, I can't even, he said, I can't even imagine wanting life after retirement. You know what that means? I can't even imagine wanting life after I retire. Because he's like, man, once my kids are grown and gone, and once this career that has defined me for so long is no longer then, there, then, then who am I really? He's at that age now where he's looking back on his life and he's like, did, did my life really have purpose? This, this thing, these things that I give so much of my time and my effort to all of the time, so much of my vitality, are they meaningful? His identity for so long has been so wrapped around what he does and being a dad, he can't even imagine his life without them anymore. He can't even imagine wanting his life without them. So it sometimes happens when you get in your 40s, your 50s. You start thinking, Did my life, does my life really matter? And he told me, I didn't tell him, he told me, I know I have an identity problem. I know I'm, fi I'm, I'm, I know I'm finding my identity in the wrong things. I just don't know the way back. Listen, church, these things are not just things in the Old Testament written 3,500 years ago. We are the same. But people that say the Bible's not relevant anymore. I mean, we don't practice these same things, but Jesus was the fulfillment of all of these things. We can see the truth of all of them right now in our lives because we don't change. Listen, church, God sets up these things like the Passover, like the Feast of Unleavened Bread, like for us now communion so that we might not forget, so that we might understand. Hear me, I don't know if you, like, with, with, in Scripture when it talks about giving God glory and worshiping Him and praising Him and giving Him all these things, I want you to hear something. 
God doesn't need your attention. Do you know that? He doesn't need it. He doesn't need anything from you. God is not calling us to to glory and honor and praise him all the time because he needs something. He's deserving of it. And because he's deserving of it, he demands it because he is the Lord of all. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so he deserves it. He absolutely deserves it. But in the end, do you know why God calls us to glorify him and honor him? One, because he deserves it and one, because he's God. But secondarily, because you need to glorify him. You need to praise him. You need to worship him because we are worshipers and we are going to worship something and, and we are idol factories. We're either going to make God our, our one and only and worship him or we're going to find idols to wrap our lives around and it's going to go where a person that, that seems to have it all in this life and the American dream is at a point and he says, does my life even matter? Because those are just things and some of them are really important things but we can lose all of them in a moment. And then who are we? And then who are we? We need to worship. We need to glorify God. We need these reminders. Church, that's why we never stop talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we don't move on from it. It's the reason that we're preaching the word of God every week, and I'm not up here preaching feel-good sermons on the week after Easter. Right? It's the reason that we, we consistently take communion. It's the reason that we'll never stop celebrating Easter. We'll never stop celebrating Christmas because we need to remember who our God actually is. We need to remember what he has done and the cost that it took for him to accomplish the things that he has done. And we need to remember secondarily, but almost as vitally, we need to remember that our identity is found in him. You know, Romans 12, 1 says that the way that we worship God is first and foremost by remembering the gospel, remembering what God did for us through Jesus Christ, but secondarily by giving our lives as a living sacrifice. Listen, we don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. We don't have to give God the firstborn like that because the firstborn of all creation was sacrificed on the cross for us once and for all. Jesus paid it all. It is finished. And we need to remember that. That's how we worship, by remembering those things and then giving our lives as a, li- not, not dead sacrifices anymore, as a living sacrifice because the sacrifice has been paid. So that means with every aspect of our lives, we see, we think about how we can give God glory and live for him first. It means finding our identity in him above all else. So here's the question for today. I bet you see it coming. What do you find your identity in? And maybe some of you would say, Jesus, confidently, praise God for that. But I think even for those of us that are in the room that are say, Jesus, man, I find my identity in God. We all have things in our lives that try to war with us to, to pull that attention away, to pull that worship away to something else that just doesn't matter nearly as much. It doesn't mean it's not important. It doesn't mean it's not unbelievably important, but compared to finding our identity in Christ. What is the thing that you, that you absolutely do find your identity in other than God or are at risk of making an idol in your life? Is it your kids? Is it being a good parent? Is it your career, your talent? Is it money? Hudson, do you know, do you know how often it's people's ministry? How many conversations I've had like that, how I've had to war against this defining me more than my relationship with Jesus? Is it politics? I mean, this is one that we don't think about. Is it your emotions? Some people get wrapped up, so wrapped up in how they feel that it becomes who they are. 
Do you know what I mean by that? I'm an anxious person. I'm a depressed person. I'm an angry person. I'm a lustful person. I'm a greedy person. It starts becoming who they are instead of something that they struggle with and they need to give to the Lord. Is it your knowledge? Just having more knowledge, having deeper knowledge than other people? Get your identity in that? You, don't, you wouldn't know how to let that go even if somebody asked you to? Or here's a big one. Is it your failures? So often we become defined by the things that we haven't done, the things that we should have done, or the things that have been done to us, the failures of others against us. Whatever it is, whatever it is, whatever tries to define you more than who you are in Christ, hear me, hear me, give that thing to God today. Because you can. Hey, this way we don't let our failures define us. Don't, if you're realizing today, if the Holy Spirit's convicting you, you realize I'm finding my identity in something other than Christ primarily. This is not about shame and guilt. This is not about you not, one more way you're not good enough. This is about you taking it to the foot of the cross. This is about Jesus going to the cross to set you free from the kingdom of slavery and death. Because we've, if you're in Jesus Christ, you've already had your exodus. You've been set free from the kingdom of slavery that enslaves you to these things into the kingdom of, hear me, life and peace. That's what God wants for you. Life. Peace. And you're not going to have life and peace if anything else in your life is primary. Because eventually it's going to drag you down. Even if you seemingly have everything in life that people say that you're supposed to have. Hear me, it's not enough. That's a part of my testimony. At 28, I had the life that I wanted to have. I had a good job and money and a family and a house and all of these things people told me that were supposed to fulfill me. And in the end, I felt this hollowness inside of me that I couldn't, I just couldn't get rid of. It wasn't enough. And I'm not saying all of you need to go and be pastors. That's not what this is about. This is about finding your identity in Christ and not letting those things own you. Not being enslaved to those things. Jesus came to set you free. So I'm saying, lay it down at the feet of the cross today. Take that seriously. Be forgiven. And as Paul says in Philippians, forget what lies behind. Strain forward to the upward call of God. Strain forward to who God has called you to be. As I said at the beginning, as I said over and over, we forget. We need these things. We need Easter. We need Christmas. We need preaching. We need community so that we do not forget. But praise God for us, it is not complicated. All of those things were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, so you can run to him. Don't make your failures more important than what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Be made new to get today. Be reminded of who you are in Christ today, that he has already passed over your sins, that you've already been forgiven that through faith you can walk in the freedom of the kingdom of life and peace because it's already done. It's already been accomplished. You walk in victory, church. We have victory, so we walk in victory from victory so that we can be who God has called us to be, a people that find our identity in Christ first by making him primary, making him first in all things. Church, I hope you take that seriously today. I pray that as we, as we start to worship, as I, I get into praying, we start to worship, that you don't just let that go and be like, yes, and amen, and then let, like, like, this is a huge deal. It destroyed the Israelites again and again, and it's destroying lives. I hope we can move forward today. Hope, I'm praying that we can move forward today as a people, as a family, who do not forget what God has done. Because we have our identity rooted in the fact that we have been set free in Christ 
as the redeemed children of God. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful that we get to see your faithfulness throughout time. God, it's just astounding to me that we can go back 3,500 years, 4,000 years ago, and see how you, were, how you were working out the redemption story through your son, the firstborn of all creation, all the way back from the beginning. God, to see how much you love us and how much you want us in your family and what you are willing to do. What, God, what you are willing to sacrifice so that we can worship you as your children set free to live in your kingdom of life and peace. God, today I pray that you would be with us. I pray there's people in this room that know they're finding their identity in something else other than you. There's people in this room that know they need to lay some stuff down. They, they know they need to change their life to, to make you primary, to make living for your glory, to worship you the first thing in their lives. God, I pray that you would help them do that today. Because, man, God, this is not easy. But, God, I'm so thankful that I get to see your word. And through your word, we get to see that you make it so obvious that you know that this isn't easy. Because 3,500 years you were talking about it. And then 2,000 years ago, Jesus talks about these things. The rest of your New Testament talks about these things. And we're talking about them to now because we know that you understand. Jesus, you died because you understand how hard these things are. And so help us to trust, help us, God, today to trust you and what Jesus, what you accomplished on the, on the cross more than how we feel more than our failures, more than where we haven't been good enough and that we would just walk in the hope and the truth of like we don't have to be good enough anymore because Jesus, you are good enough for us. So we can, just, we can just give it to you and then walk forward in freedom and hope and joy and peace. God, peace is, is hard to find in this world. But you tell us that we can find our peace in you, a peace that surpasses our understanding. So help us to believe that promise. Help us to believe it as true and to move forward. God, I thank you for these people, this family. I pray that we're not just saved, but we're saved into something, your family, your church. Help us to be a church that lifts each other up, that supports each other, that loves each other. God, help us to become more as a family than we could ever be alone. Through you, Jesus, our Passover, our exodus out of the kingdom of sin and slavery. our Savior that made us children of God. Help us today, Jesus. For it's in your name we pray, amen.